As we mentioned last week, Revelation as a whole is a revelation. It's an unveiling. It's an accessible book. It's a book meant to be grasped, read, listened to, and obeyed. But Revelation chapter 11 is a difficult chapter. We saw some of that last week. And uh, this passage also is a difficult passage. So let me start by briefly summarizing what we said last week. There's a measured temple, we said, and that measured temple is the church seen from a heavenly perspective or the church in her heavenly existence. And then there's an unmeasured and thus unprotected outer court and that stands for the church in her outward estate, the church as she's trampled by the nations. And then there were some numbers. 42 months, 1260 days, and these numbers we said refer to the whole time of the church's witness, the whole church age. There were two witnesses, there were two lampstands, two olive trees. We said these are symbolic of the whole church in her prophetic witness to the nations. So that's what we did last week. And the text this morning then, which picks up from there, we'll look at under three headings. The witnesses' defeat in verses 7 through 10. Their vindication, verses 11 and 12. And then the earthquake in verse 13. The the defeat, the vindication, the earthquake... So first, the witnesses, the whole church is the witness, or are the witnesses, their defeat. Verse 7 says, when they have finished their testimony, notice that, the beast comes up or rises from the abyss and shall attack, the beast shall make war on them and conquer them or overpower them and kill them. We should note at the outset that the witnesses are immune from death as long as is needed to complete their testimony. God preserves and He protects the church for the sole reason of prophetic witness. You are immune from death for as long as it takes for you to complete your testimony. You're sealed. As the church was sealed in chapter 7. You're measured. As the church was measured. And this means that the church shall succeed in her testimony to the nations. Paul says in Ephesians that God created the world so that he might show his manifold wisdom. Even to the principalities and powers through the church. So the two witnesses... That is, each member of the corporate body of Christ, they are not going to join the throng of martyrs, of martyr witnesses, until in God's sovereign purpose, they have completed their testimony. This is why we live. This is why we breathe. This is why we have our being. The church is called out into the nations for prophetic witness. But, and we saw this last week, Though we are sealed and measured and protected, we're not immune from suffering or even martyrdom. That was the significance of the fact that there was an outer court that wasn't measured and was left to be trampled by the nations. 
And that trampling comes into view next here in our text. The text says that when the witnesses finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. This is the first mention of the beast in the book of Revelation. I've been talking about the beast a lot, but this is the first time the beast appears. He'll appear in all of his horror a little bit later. So, if it hasn't been clear, my belief is that the beast is first and foremost the Roman Empire. It's very important to get some of these figures right. There's a lot of players and a lot of numbers in in Revelation. But the beast is first and foremost the Roman Empire. And by analogy, all beastial political powers throughout history which oppose the church. This, by the way, is not an idiosyncratic view of mine. This is a commonly held view. It's certainly the majority view. So, the beast finally appears in the book. He comes out of the abyss, the same bottomless pit that was opened by Satan himself in chapter 9. Out of that pit, out of that abyss comes the beast. And John is saying to the churches in Asia Minor, it's always important to remember John is writing to real Christians on the ground in real cities when we get to these later parts of the book. He's saying to them, Roman power is becoming demonic power. If you were a Christian, sitting a, a farmer or whatever, sitting in a church in Asia Minor, reading this highly symbolic book, that's what John wants you to take away. Notice the realism in the text. The, the, uh, it's gruesome, actually. The beast arises and he will make war on the saints. He will overpower them, literally conquer them. And he will kill them. Not the kind of prophecy you want to hear in your church congregation. The beast is going to arise. He will make war on you. He will overpower you. He will conquer you. He will kill you. In chapter 13, the same language is used. It says he was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. This is unblinking realism. The church which is called to conquer is conquered by the beast. This is the irony here, the paradox. The church which is called to conquer. What does Paul keep saying, I mean, Paul, what does John keep saying through the Spirit to the churches, the seven churches in the early chapters of the book? To he who overcomes, to him who conquers, to the one who conquers. Conquer, 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 conquer. Here he says, you who are called to conquer are about to be conquered. The holy city is trampled for 42 months, three and a half years. That means on and off throughout the church's history. Right? The background here is Daniel 7, where the saints are going to inherit a kingdom. But before they inherit a kingdom, Daniel 7 says, this bestial power, is, they're going to be giving into the hands of this beast for a time, times, and half a time. And so as it was for Jesus, as it was for Jesus, the Lamb of God, So it is for us. Conquest is by being conquered. Faithful witness means witness unto death. We are always vowing from our baptism on that we are willing to be called into this witness. 
For what is baptism other than union with Christ in his death? This is why when we eat the word of God, it's both sweet and bitter. So, the witnesses are killed throughout the church age. But they're, not, they're killed after they finish their testimony. Right? Monstrous regimes have and are, they currently are, swallowing up our brothers and sisters. And we're we're reminded again and again, this is one of the great values of Revelation. And this is a contemporary, acute, and urgent problem worldwide, right? It's not gone away. One could argue there are more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than there have been in any previous century. This faith is the only faith for which martyrdom is a fundamental means of witness, not only witness, but triumph. And there's a deep logic here. It's not like there's Christianity and out here on the fringes there's martyrdom. This is the logic of taking up one's cross and following Jesus. There's no following of Jesus without essentially martyrdom. And we should expect this. Because it's the incarnate Lord who said to his disciples... The world hated me. You can expect them to hate you. You should not hate them, of course. And so, verse 8. We read that their dead bodies, the dead bodies of the faithful witnesses, will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. This city here, has caused a good bit of controversy. I I, I want to contend that it it cannot possibly be simply Jerusalem. Not only Jerusalem. The the great city, notice it's called the great city, in the book of Revelation is always Babylon. So the city where their bodies lie is called figuratively, notice that, Sodom. That is, this place is the seat of sexual immorality in the world. That's John's point there. And Egypt. It's the seat of enslaving persecution of the people of God. And the phrase where their Lord was crucified by itself, of course, refers to Jerusalem. But the grammar here indicates that the text should be read to see Jerusalem as the third in a series. That is, the city is symbolically Sodom, it's symbolically Egypt, and it's symbolically the city where their Lord was crucified. So in that sense, of course, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, which killed the prophets, crucified the Lord, but it's important to get this. Jerusalem and its Hierarchy did not account and cannot account for the vast array of Christian martyrs in view in this book. Nevertheless, Jerusalem stands as a picture, a kind of foretaste of the great city of Babylon. So if you're confused, I will, I'll try and uh, bottom line this. The great city here is Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem, and especially to the readers of this book, 
Babylon or Rome. So think of it, think of it this way. The beast is the empire. First and foremost, the Roman Empire. The Babylonian harlot, which we meet later in the book, she is the capital city. John says she rides on the beast. So you have the beast, which is the empire, and then you have the city, which is the the decadent, depraved capital city depicted as a harlot riding on top of the beast. The Roman Empire is the beast. The city of Rome is the harlot. But of course, they both stand in for empires and cities which oppose the witnesses. Now, that's, that might seem a, a, a complex reading of a text that seems to say Jerusalem's in view. But there's another reason why Jerusalem cannot simply be in view. You see that in verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be buried. We'll come back to the three and a half days. But notice John's fourfold description, we've seen this before, of the whole world. Peoples, tribes, languages, and nations. So the whole world, every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, not just Palestine, the whole world sees the dead bodies of the church's witnesses. So these are not two individual witnesses slain in the streets of Jerusalem. The whole world sees them. They're they're slain in the streets of Babylon, in the city of man. This is only logical. If If we were right last week that the two witnesses are the corporate church, then their bodies lie wherever the church's martyrs lie. Saints who are killed by the empire, they lie mystically in the streets of Rome. Saints killed by other manifestations of the beast lie in other cities. All of these cities, John is saying, Sodom-like and Egypt-like and Jerusalem-like, reject the witness of Christ and the prophetically commissioned church. In the three and a half days, they're also symbolic. It's a shortened version of three and a half years. The time of trampling, the time of suffering witness. So what do the three and a half days mean? Well, they mean that there are times when it looks like the church is utterly defeated. Now is such a time if you're from Iraq or Syria. Completely obliterated, trampled, conquered, killed. Second, the three and a half days tells us that like their Lord, the saints will be vindicated. And their vindication will not tarry long. And the world here refuses, the text says, to allow their bodies to be placed in a tomb. It, it indicates the indignity, the disdain, which the world has for the church's witnesses. These witnesses are rarely getting nice funerals. The text says they gloat and they celebrate and they exchange gifts because these two prophets had been a torment. There's a kind of holy torment. The text says in chapter 9 that the world is tormented by the plagues. But here we see that the world is not simply tormented by judgment. That torment includes the verbal 
life witness of the church. So John thinks the church is to be a living accusation. Again, this does not mean we're narrow-minded or we're mean. But we are a holy and a provocative presence in the earth. And when we're not, then the church needs to reflect on this. Remember who's saying this. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved. The one, the apostle of love, the theologian of love, the one who placed his head on the Lord's breast. This John says you are to be a living accusation in the earth. A form of holy torment. You know, goodness and purity and love are tormenting. They're intrinsically tormenting if someone is trapped in evil. It's like if you have a young person who is uh, addicted to some vile sort of music and you force them to listen to Bach all day. It, tor- it torments them. That's the idea. There's a, there's a genuine sense in which goodness and excellence and purity and love can torment. It's not, that it, it's not that you shouldn't have the picture of the word torment of some sadistic, suffering-inflicting despot. This is the torment of the holy love of God. So the church is snuffed out and the text says Babylon rejoices. Right? It's a victory for fairness and equality. No more bigoted Christian speech. They, they, they don't just um, acknowledge that the church has been snuffed out. It's often intended to be snuffed out. They want to snuff it out. They rejoice that it's snuffed out. Who doesn't want a tormenting presence snuffed out? So secondly, I want to talk about the vindication. After three and a half days, the text says, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Like Jesus, the church will be raised. However, I, I think this passage points to bodily resurrection, but the main point is that the church, seemingly obliterated by suffering, shall yet live. Remember Ezekiel 37, and, and the language here is drawing on that passage. There's, he has a vision, the prophet of a valley of dry, dead bones. And he's told that Israel, in exile, is like those dry bones. But the Spirit of the Lord, notice the breath from God in this text, the Lord and giver of life, resurrects Israel out of exile, and he shall continually resurrect the church from the dead. The story of the church in China in the 20th century is essentially this story. A church continually resurrected from the dead. We're not yet at the seventh trumpet. We're not yet at the end of history. We're in, it, we're in an interlude, so this is not the final bodily resurrection. It's figurative language to describe the vindication of the church. So, the triumph of the church over, especially the Roman beast, leads in the text to those who were rejoicing. They were celebrating. They were celebrating the defeat of the church. It says they're struck with fear or terror at the end of verse 11. And then the witnesses hear this voice. Come up here. 
This is an echo of of the call to John in chapter 4, where John was told, come up here. And John was ushered into the heavenly sanctuary, but he remained on earth. In other words, he was given a vision. So again, I don't think we're looking at the actual bodily ascension into heaven of any individuals or even the church. Remember this. This is an important point. In the book of Revelation, neither individual martyrs nor the church as a whole ascend into heaven bodily. In this book, the new heavens and the new earth descend to us at the end. So, there's something like an ascension. It looks like an ascension, but it's really a historical vindication of the church. They go up on a cloud in in verse 12, like Elijah. And their enemies looked on, meaning the enemies are going to perceive that the martyrs had been vindicated. The church's witness will be vindicated in history, and people will perceive that it's been vindicated. They will see it. I know this is a difficult passage. Hopefully the third point will clarify a few things. So I want to turn to the third point, which is the earthquake. This is a very hopeful point. At verse 13, you might think, how can an earthquake be hopeful? This is a very hopeful earthquake. Verse 13, at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Or collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Yeah, he thinks this is good news. Um, Now, just uh, again, another aside... The whole temple and the whole city of Jerusalem were destroyed in 70 A.D. Here, only a tenth of the symbolic or mystical city falls. And so what do we have here? We have a partial judgment on the great city of Babylon. It's a partial judgment. A tenth falls, 7,000. Notice something here. This is a milder judgment than the seals which affected a third of the earth. And the trumpets, which affected a fourth. Here it's only a tenth. Now John does not spell this out for us, but he expects us to be literate biblical readers. And biblically a tenth refers to the small remaining portion, the saved remnant, after the majority, the nine-tenths, are judged. So what's going on here is a startling reversal. Only a tenth of the city falls. 90% of Babylon does not fall, is not judged. And this is borne out by the number, the next number, 7,000 people were killed. This evokes Elijah, who has loomed very large in this passage. He found out that a remnant of 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal and that they would be spared. Now notice, here though, it's not a remnant being spared. It's a little tiny remnant being judged. The rest are spared. In Elijah, the remnant was spared. Here, the 10%. The 7,000 are judged. The rest, the text says. The rest. That is the vast majority of Babylon, of the nations. They were terrified or they feared and they gave glory to the God of heaven. This is a critical statement. 
In chapter 9, when the trumpets were, were being poured out, we were told that the rest, this was the exact words John used, the rest who were not killed by the plagues did not repent. Here he says the rest, same words, do repent. They're terrified and they give glory to the God of heaven. This is genuine repentance. The phrase, they gave glory to the God of heaven, always is genuine in the book. It always occurs in conjunction with fear or holy terror, as we have it here. In chapter 14, there's an angel who proclaims the gospel. And what what does he say? He says, fear God and give him glory. In chapter 15, the saints say, O Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? So we have genuine repentance here. You know, there are not a lot of moments like this in Revelation. There's a lot of judgment, and you think, what what is the issue of this going to be? And here, stunningly, we are told that the witness of the martyr church, the company of prophets, is vindicated. And one of the ways it's vindicated is by the conversion of the nations. 90% of Babylon fears God and gives him glory here. In the midst of these devastating judgments on the nations, God is saving the nations. It turns out that these same nations appear at the end of the book. And do you know what they're doing there at the end of the book of Revelation? They are bringing their glory into the holy city, into the new Jerusalem. And so here we get this profound indication of how did this happen? Now you can get to the end of the book of Revelation and think, what are these nations doing here? I thought they were all destroyed like multiple times over. I thought all the nations were judged. I thought all the nations were killed. I thought the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath took care of all the nations. And here they are streaming into the new heavens and the new earth. What's going on here? Well, this, is, this passage right here is key to get what's going on. That in the midst of those judgments, God is still nevertheless saving the nations. What raw judgment couldn't do You and your eating of the scroll, your prophesying, does. It brings genuine salvation to the nations. Or another way to think of it is this way. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. You are called into that to participate in that death and resurrection. And you make his witness, you make his faithful witness of universal, global effect. They gave glory to the God of heaven. That's the universal nature of his acclaim. The people saved here are from every tribe and tongue and nation. So that's the inner content of the scroll. It is very sober, but it is, this earthquake is an exuberant and hopeful vision. So we're called, as we see over and over and over again in this book, to witness 
to witness, to witness, to witness. To bear legal testimony. Solemn and joyful legal testimony in the earth. But this text tells us a couple things. It says, the church's witness will provoke trampling by the bestial powers. The church will be conquered. The church will be killed, yet she shall be vindicated. She shall not be destroyed. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, as the hymn says, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. And her vindication by the breath, the life-giving Spirit of God, even in the face of her trampling, is the power which converts the world. The world is not converted primarily by any sort of missionary strategy. It's pervert, it's, it's, Converted by missionary blood being spilled, John says. It's converted through disaster, through failure, through tragedy. It saves the same way Jesus saves the world. This is the inner content of the scroll, which the slain, yet standing, conquered, yet vindicated lamb opens. This is the story and the calling of the church. It's the shape of your life. Sure, you may not be called to physical martyrdom. But again, all Christians are called to a thousand martyrdoms every day. It's all martyrdom all the time. Because that's what taking up the cross means. And that means it's all joyful resurrection vindication all the time. We don't get to have one part of this mystery or cut it in half or 60% martyrdom and 30% joy or 90% joy. It's all martyrdom and all vindication all the time. And so put this prophetic mantle on. That's what we're called to do here, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow the Lamb. This is why we eat the book. So we're the people who've responded to the gospel. And as that people, we should do what those who respond to it in our text do. Fear God. Fear God and give Him glory. For His judgments are in all the earth, and His witnesses are in all the earth. And they are not without mighty saving effects on the nations. Amen.